Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're delighted to have Dr. Judy Garber. She is the Susan F. Smith Chair and Chief of the Division for Cancer Genetics and Prevention at the Dana-Farber Institute. She is also Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, Dr. Garber. Thanks for having me, TJ. Um, you know, I wanted to have you tell the audience a bit about yourself, uh, what you do uh, for those that don't know you. However, you're incredibly famous in uh, the hereditary cancer world, so everyone should know you. <laughs> I also wanted to bring you on to uh, go through Olympia, which was a, a groundbreaking study that recently came out. And so for those uh, that want to reference, this is a title of the publication, uh, which is in the New England Journal in 2021, is Adjuvant Alaparib for Patients with BRCA1 or BRCA2 Mutated Breast Cancer. So thank you so much for coming on, telling people a little bit about yourself so, so they get to know, you know what an academic physician scientist does um, with uh, their time. And then uh, some of the amazing work that you're doing here, uh, really advancing the field for uh, germline mutation carriers and PARP inhibitors. So to that end, I mean, if, if you want to give a little bit of background of, you know, how did you end up becoming who you are and, you know, doing what you're doing, if you want to tell a little bit about your backstory, because you're, you're not a, you know, medical geneticist, however, uh, you know, many people would, would think you are with uh, your comfort level with the, you know, BRCA1 and 2, uh, hereditary gene mutations, and, and all of your other knowledge base. Okay, I'll try. So uh, <laughs> I'm a breast medical oncologist, and I do clinical cancer genetics my research background is in epidemiology. So um, when I'm old enough that when we started doing cancer genetics, it was mostly recognizing that there were cancer families and I was interested in breast cancer. And just at the time that I was finishing my fellowship, BRCA1 was mapped and TP53 was identified as the Lee-Framini gene. So it's that far back. And then mm. the, the molecular explosion, and then it was possible to characterize people as having mutations in specific genes or not, or pathogenic variants, as we'd say today, and who did and who didn't, and which families were and weren't. So then suddenly it was important to be able to distinguish people. And once it was understood what BRCA1 and BRCA2 did, which you know was not immediately obvious from those days when the gene was found, but once it was recognized that they were important in repairing DNA errors, then it became reasonable to think, well, maybe they could be treated differently or maybe they should be managed differently. Otherwise, maybe they can pre be prevented differently. Yeah. Then there was a lot to think about. And how did you end up uh, doing what you're doing at Dana-Farber and Harvard? Well, I was very lucky because um, when I was resident at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, we rotated at Dana-Farber and I learned about Fred Lee, who was from mm -hmm. Lee-Framini syndrome. So when I did my fellowship there, there was an opportunity to study with Fred and train with him in the same way that other people were doing lab work, which is probably the biggest hole in my career that I never did that. Um, but working with Fred, I learned how to think about cancer genetics or at least cancer families. Um, and so then I just stayed and fortunately for me, the Farber became a good home for people like David Livingston who worked on BRCA1, Alan DeAndrea, um, you know, people who, who were, uh, Richard Kolodner was there then, he worked in Lynch syndrome genes, although really Richard is a yeast geneticist and they just figured out that the genes he was studying were important for Lynch syndrome. 
So it was just a great time. Even Steve Friend was there in those days. He had just, you know, uh, discovered RB. So um, it was a good time to think with those people. And, and in the way that the best work is collaborative, there was that. And then the rest of those collaborations were from people at other places, places you've been. Ken Offit with Mark Robson, with Barb Weber at those days, with Susan Domchek, with, with uh, Jeff Weitzel. There were, you know, then, then everybody working together, you could expand the range of what you could work on. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, done a lot of clinical research. Are you seeing patients right now? I do see patients. I see breast cancer patients one morning a week, and I see genetics patients two afternoons a week. It's helpful. It, it lets you remember what the important questions are. For yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you kind of touched on a little bit. I mean, where we're going with the, the treatment and how to really take care of uh, individuals with hereditary cancer mutations. I asked you to, to come on and talk about a little bit about Olympia, just because, uh, you know, really just, again, such a, you know, uh, groundbreaking study. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about kind of the, the concept of the study and where it originated from and, uh, you know, tell people a little bit about the study? I'd be glad to. I would just say first that um, the PARP inhibitors were fascinating drugs Alan, that um, Alan Ashworth and others began to work on with a small company. So this is a good, for me, my only foray into drug development, lots of people do more than I do, but it was clear from the early data that these were drugs that might work almost exclusively at that time in people who had inherited mutations in BRCA1 and 2. So their tumors would have lost both copies of one or the other mm -hmm. gene. And in those days, we were only really thinking about breast and ovarian cancer. We didn't think so much about pancreas or prostate because we hadn't yet really demonstrated how important these were. Um, and in the early studies, there were signs that these would work, but there were also some real missteps. Like the first big study was with a drug that turned out not to be a PARP inhibitor. And though the drug, so the, it, its first trial looked positive, the big trial was negative, and it was almost the end of the whole field. Yeah. But finally prevailed upon the, the pharma, the drug companies to come back and try these trials. And they first thought there wouldn't be enough mutation carriers to be interested. Like all drug development, the work began with people with advanced disease, metastatic disease. And so first in ovarian and then in breast, you could show that these drugs at least could have a response. And then as is always done in cancer drug development, mm -hmm. began to move earlier and earlier. So the important trials like Embraca and Olympiad that showed that if you gave a PARP inhibitor to a woman with metastatic breast cancer, when she first became metastatic before, she had had much other treatment and compared those women getting a single agent PARP inhibitor to a chemotherapy drug, except platinum, um, you could show that their drugs were active and that women did better and did better longer. Mm -hmm. And that encouraged that moving the drug ever sooner so you'd have a chance to improve the chances for cure. And that's where Olympia came from. There had already been studies like this in ovarian cancer because I think there were fewer alternatives for women with yeah. ovarian cancer. Here in breast cancer, took a while to get there, but then finally here was the opportunity for Olympia. Yeah, and look at, I mean, you know, ovarian cancer has been incredible. I mean, you know, to, to see the progression-free survival that's now going on with, you know, bringing in 
PARP inhibitors into, you know, a maintenance phase or, um, you know, adjuvant chemotherapy for individuals with ovarian cancer. I mean, you know, just really a, a game changer uh, in itself for the field. And yeah, it's exciting to see now this uh, work, you know, spilling over to breast. And yeah, as you mentioned, you know, prostate, pancreatic, um, you know, a lot of these uh, BRCA1 and 2 predisposition type cancers. And what did, uh, how was the study set up and, and what were the, the findings? So the study was set up in a slightly unusual way. So this was an international collaboration, which seemed necessary to collect 1,836 BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers. Yeah. In, and this what? is Olympia, I should uh, preface. Yeah. 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 Olympia study. yeah. So we knew we would need a large number of patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trial was first conceived, I think, by the some large clinical trialist groups, the BIG, the Breast International Group in Europe, and the NRG and Alliance in the United States. But they had to get support from pharma. So they had to get AstraZeneca, who makes Elaparib, to agree to help support the study. But the study was done, I say it's unusual because usually there's one protocol, everybody's got the same thing. And here, although it was one protocol, part of the study was run by BIG, part was run in the United States. They put all the data together in one place, but they were not exactly the same. And it was Hmm. considered not exactly AstraZeneca's trial, but a a collaborative effort. I don't know whether Pharma will ever do it again, but actually it worked quite well. And um, Frontier Science kept the data and it became possible to do this Now, AstraZeneca had to agree that they would help screen patients to look for their BRCA mutations because not everywhere in the world is it easy to get screening done. So that was a big investment on their part too. And what what were the findings when you you put people either on a PARP inhibitor um, or placebo after their uh, original chemotherapy? And and actually, I have a question even before that. I'm, I've always been confused personally on um, the selection criteria for the patients. Um, you know, you didn't, it wasn't done off regular staging that we tend to think of like all stage two or stage three patients or all people with chemotherapy. There seemed to be some uh, very uh, specific selection criteria. I was just wondering personally, you know, how, how that came about and, um, you know, the, the thought process of that and then how people were enrolled. I think it's an important question. How, always, who's in the study? Mm-hmm. So the yeah. study was partly figured out by who had high risk of recurrence, because otherwise, who needed to get extra treatment at the mm-hmm. end of their treatment? So for triple negative patients, it was a little bit easier. People who had stage two or three disease and were triple negative had a pretty high likelihood of recurrence, even after standard treatment. And that treatment could be either neoadjuvant or adjuvant, and that mean neoadjuvant meaning before surgery or adjuvant after surgery. And, and that was important because the patterns of care were changing around the world. But if you limited the study to triple negative patients, it would only be BRCA1 pretty much or mostly. So we wanted to include people with estrogen receptor positive tumors. Well, for that, the FDA felt strongly that they had to have especially high risk because mm. they were ready going to get chemo and hormonal therapy? And did they really need the risk of anything extra? So they wanted patients who had at least four positive lymph nodes. So now you've got kind of different groups, but all what they had in common was they had a germline mutation in BRCA1 or 2, and they had a high risk of recurrence, whether they were ER negative or ER positive. 
Yeah. So that's how it came to be those groups. And the randomization was one-to-one. You either got the PARP inhibitor or you got a placebo and no, and it's blinded. Of course, no one knew which was which. Mm-hmm. And it had to be for people who finished all their treatment, not just their chemo. They had to have finished their surgery and their radiation and everything. So they were done and then they were randomized. Yeah. And if had hormone receptor positive disease, they could take their hormonal therapy at the same time. Yeah. And were you surprised by the results when they were unblinded? I think we were surprised because they were so positive so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. This was, didn't, it only took two and a half years of average Mm -hmm. follow-up. I mean, it took years of getting everybody to that point, but we were gratified, I would say, and happy naturally that there's something that looked like it could be a benefit and that you could see it so fast. Yeah. And how do you think this is uh, changing practice now? I mean, how have you seen personally or heard from colleagues? I think we were impressed that because there was a different, now remember, we haven't shown that people live longer from having this treatment. What we have shown is that they were less likely to have their disease come back very quickly. And especially for triple negative breast cancers, which we all know can recur very quickly, um, this was helpful. And it was enough of a difference that it became part of guidelines from ASCO and, you know, mm-hmm. immediately. Like, yeah, very quickly. Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah. They clearly wanted this to become part of care. In the U.S., where we largely have access to new treatments right away, this has certainly changed care. People are going on to the drug. Um, I think in parts of the world where that's not true, it's going to take longer. And that's been an issue for mm-hmm. trying to do a an ethical and culturally sensitive large clinical trial, you'd hate to show a benefit in countries where people then can't get the treatment. So that's an issue. But but in the US um, and in other parts of the world, this has now become part of treatment. And we, we now have to think about this actually in places I didn't necessarily anticipate because at the same time, we were being shown that immunotherapy was helpful for triple mm-hmm. negative. And what do you do now when you have a BRCA? Yeah, yeah. You give the triple negative, you give the alaprib. What about the immunotherapy? So people are really trying to move quickly to adjust to progress in both areas. Isn't that great? What a nice problem to have. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And where do you see this all going? You know, right now, it, it, um, you know, the guidelines that came out from ASCO and um, NCCN breast treatment also updated. I also saw that, um, you know, the, the NCCN hereditary breast and ovarian cancer committee, uh, now have, uh, you know, taken Olympia, um, inclusion criteria, at least as something that should be considered for anyone undergoing uh, germline mutation testing. Where do you, where do you see the whole field moving? Um, you know, over time, how are you talking with patients about it now? I think there are probably a couple of maybe let's say three major impact places. One of course is who's getting genetic tested. Mm -hmm. So with results in metastatic disease showing that PARP inhibitors were a good thing when people had mutations, now you had to test women with metastatic disease and men to see if they were eligible if you hadn't already done it. So that was a game changer. Now you're saying we have to know at diagnosis, does someone have a BRCA mutation or not? Because if they do, we should consider them. Now, that means, as NCCN says, if they would be eligible for treatment. Yeah. So people who have a BRCA mutation and a tiny tumor who would not be eligible, maybe they, you know, they, they wouldn't need to know. But for people whose care would change, then we have to figure out how to do more testing up front. Mm-hmm. 
that was a big impact. A second impact was saying, well, great, now we have a drug that works, but we were only giving it after a lot of other treatment. Maybe we could give it instead of some of that treatment. So I think you're going to see clinical trials coming forward asking, when should we use the PARP inhibitor? Mm. Mm-hmm. give somewhat less chemo and give PARP inhibitor instead? And even what about patients with smaller tumors or patients with even ER positive tumors? We're pretty determined to keep those ER positive tumors in the mix, but yeah. to add their PARP inhibitor could be used earlier in their care. And as part of their care, instead of chemotherapy, because it does have less toxicity. Yeah. So potentially in the mix for really anyone that you know may need chemotherapy. I yeah, but maybe I, it is in place I, of chemotherapy at some point. Yeah. Right. First, I think some day, the, the other question that's clearly actually, need more studies, but yeah. Yeah. Okay, these are all yeah. clinical trials. You can't yeah. just say, okay, now we can use right. this. But I think with more follow-up, if we're able to show that people do live longer and that the drugs are safe, because there was remarkably no important difference in toxicity mm-hmm. among the people who took the elaborate or who didn't. If that's true, then people are starting to ask, can we use Olaparib or other PARP inhibitors for prevention? Now yeah. that change. Yeah. And some of that data may come out of this work. I don't know if that's being, I, I thought um, it was being looked at. I don't, you probably have better insight, you know, than me, uh, but you know, in the sense of, yeah, reduction in second breast cancers. So I th- people are certainly asking about second cancers. I mm. think for second breast cancers, it might be a challenge because many people, as you know, who find out they have a mutation have bilateral mastectomies yeah. and don't wait for a second tumor. So it may be hard to show second breast cancers. You may just not have the power. You might be able to show less ovarian cancer if people have put mm. off that surgery. And then there may be other cancers too that are prevented by the medication. For the breast cancer for primary prevention, could you use this drug? I don't think you could take this every day for years on end, yeah. not your bone marrow, but you might be able to take it for a month, a year or mm-hmm. a month. That sort of thinking is very different for prevention, but it becomes possible with this kind of data. And to me, that's one of the, you know, if that really came to be, that would be a huge transformation. Yeah, that would be absolutely incredible. That was a great overview of the the study. And, you know, for those out there that haven't looked this over, uh, because, you know, as I am uh, talking with people around the country, a lot of people know about it, but I I have been surprised that some people have not heard of it yet. So yes, if those of you who are listening, if you have not seen this study, uh, please go take a look. And then I just want to ask, I mean, anything uh, that you're working on now that, uh, you know, beyond uh, maybe Olympia that, you know, you wanted to tell people or uh, let people know uh, where your work is going yourself. Well, thanks for that opportunity. I, I will kind give of a little. this on you. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, there's, I mean, we're going to have to wait to figure out more about how to do prevention with mm-hmm. a PARP inhibitor, but there is another trial that's going to open in the U.S. that is already open in Austria, Australia, Spain, and Israel, and will also open in the U.K. and and Germany. So just in case you have an international audience for this. Yeah, we do actually. Yeah, Uh, I'll bet you do. But this is the BRCAP trial. This is another prevention trial for women with BRCA mutations, BRCA1 in particular, um, who have not had breast cancer and have not had surgery and are willing to take the drug denosumab. Denosumab is a drug used to treat osteoporosis. So it's been Mm -hmm. proven to be healthy in women without cancer. 
It is used in cancer patients to protect their bones too. But this trial compares that to a placebo in women who have some time before they're planning prophylactic surgery to see if we can actually prevent breast cancer with this drug. And while it's not obvious to anybody, where did this come from? There's data in both mice and humans that this drug, which blocked a molecule called rank ligand. So this is a rank ligand inhibitor and it can prevent breast cancer in mice with BRCA1 mutations. So this is a study that's going to be opening mm. in the U.S. Uh, in early 2022 and is open elsewhere in the world. And certainly if people are interested, we'd love to tell them about the trial. So keep an eye that the study will start to be advertised, I would say first part of 2022 and is a really important effort, something that we hope will make a difference for the next generation in particular. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. How, how many uh, people are you looking to recruit for this? Well, the study overall will be bigger than Olympia. Yeah. 100 women in the U.S., about 300. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, thank you for all you are doing. No, this is huge. And uh, again, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, yeah, you are clearly an expert in this field and moving the needle for a lot of people that, you know, otherwise wouldn't have, uh, you know, access to these kind of, uh, you know, life-changing treatments. So you're, you're doing a lot, uh, well more than just seeing your own patient population. You're really uh, moving, moving things for the entire world. So also hats off to uh, your collaborators, you know, through all this work, um, you know, uh, it takes a, a village and, you know, you just hit on that with the last study, uh, BRCAP, because, you know, you can't do it alone and you need a lot of sites to help recruit a lot of patients and you need, you know, pharma companies and, you know, testing companies and, and a lot goes into uh, all of these trials. Well, I should just say that, you know, the Olympia trial would not have been possible without a huge network of collaborators. And I should not in any way make it sound like I did the study. This was an enormous international effort. Myriad was actually the testing lab, the, the central lab for the study mm -hmm. and tested about 25,000 women to find the people on the trial, the patients really get huge credit. It's an incredibly brave thing to be part of a yeah. trial when you have a scary disease and diagnosis, and we should uh, never underestimate what that takes. Um, but it's a great, it's very exciting to be able to work together on things that you hope will make a difference, and certainly not everything does. So it's a thrill when something looks like it can offer better futures. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you.